This is the Nutanix Community Podcast with Dwayne Lesnar and Angelo Luciani, episode 59. Here we go. This week, Dwayne and I chat with Karthik Raganathi from Yugabyte. Some of the topics we covered were databases in the cloud, NoSQL and SQL databases, state of the enterprise with new age applications. By the way, a new term coined by Dwayne, I think. It's very informative. Let's join the conversation. Today, we're joined by Nutanix alumni. One of his co-founders was also on the show previously talking about Dedupe. So with me, we have Karthik Raganathi. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Dwayne. Very nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, hopefully I didn't butcher your last name too much, but it's great to be talking to you online again. Likewise, very nice to be talking to you again, yep. Uh, I think it was at DockerCon that I had briefly ran into you, and we are kind of talking about what you were up to at Yugabyte and how, you know, <laughs> what, what it really needs or what it takes to deploy databases into the cloud. Um, and I thought I also saw some good posts online about kind of describing different databases, you know, that are used, SQL and NoSQL, and what that, that means. So I'd kind of like to, to deep dive into those areas and kind of get on your get your take on what's happening inside the enterprise and also with, you know, the if it's correctly deemed new aged applications, what those cloud kids are up to. So absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Yeah, it was DockerCon, actually, and it was a great conversation. Yeah, it's those things where you wish you would have had the record button right <laughs> then and there, but uh, that's usually never never the case. Though getting this podcast started, we well, I realized that it may be harder to run Skype than it is to run a database in the cloud. So <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe... Um, I think most of the enterprise, I would say, or, you know, we, we use the word a lot here too, legacy, but that could mean anything in the land of IT. But, you know, we, I would say SQL, Oracle, those things are predominant in the enterprise space. Um, how do you see those being played out in, in the cloud and why people are actually, why do you even want to run a database in the cloud? Is it just lift and shift or, or what are people up to? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I'll, I'll answer that with uh, a more slightly more recent historical perspective. So we started Yugabyte in, in 2016, and uh, we've been talking to enterprise customers for like you know the third year in a row now as a part of Yugabyte. So it's, it's pretty uh, interesting to see how the cloud perspective has evolved from the database side of things. Uh, in 2016, most customers were thinking about if the cloud was safe enough and if it actually made sense to put it as a part of their longer-term roadmap. Um, but that said, some of the folks were actually experimenting and trying to move some test dev workloads into the cloud. Uh, come 2017, I think it, uh, the cloud did a lot. The various public clouds did a lot of work with respect to security. So what we found was a lot of people started adopting the cloud, and it was mostly lift and shift. Now, forward one more year in 2018, now people are truly understanding that to get ROI from the cloud, you have to build the app in a cloud-native fashion, and just a traditional lift and shift is probably going to be worse off 
and it's not going to utilize like in terms of cost and ROI, and it's not going to give you all the features that you would, had wanted from the cloud in the first place. So we're seeing that trend happen. We're seeing people replatform themselves for the cloud and move into the cloud in order to create a net new breed of application. I thought it was interesting, you know, with that perspective and, you know, typically if you have a long, a long running workload, that kind of always seems fit for, for on-prem, but you had brought up the notion that, you know, if you had a data center anywhere in the world, like what would you do with it? And that would be, you know, you can, now you can deploy a database really beside your customer for the most part. That that's right. Yes, exactly. And uh, public clouds have really made it a, made a lot of uh, data centers available to us. So between the three big public clouds, there are over a hundred different data centers in a hundred different regions. So that means you can now serve your customers with very low latency, and uh, it is possible to you know transfer your data and and really get it and to enable newer types of user experiences. Uh, something that you would have not thought possible when you were building apps in the older era, when and that's when you were interfacing with things like an Oracle or a SQL Server or the traditional RDBMSs, because they were built in an era when you wanted to quickly build an app, and it was deployed to one or maybe two data centers at the most, and it was active-passive with failover. And failures were not that common because the amount of data, the number of apps were far less back then than it is today. Yeah, if I look at a... In an old and an enterprise that's been around for a while, they probably typically have you know two three hundred apps that they need to care and feed. If you're gonna kind of go down this route, what kind of tooling do you need? Because like, am I just going to deploy a SQL VM or a NoSQL VM and then call it good? Like to me, if you're if you're having one of these scaled out applications, that's you know dispersed everywhere that doesn't seem like that's gonna really make it work (laughs) absolutely i think that's a very uh uh, good question it's a very deep question actually so if you think about what type of a database do you really need um it's it's funny that all of the sql and no sql databases we talk about today were all born in the pre-cloud era they were all like built around 2007 2008 when it was still predominantly on-premise with that focus So if you now fast forward to the cloud era, what is the one thing or the two things that the cloud has completely changed? Firstly, it has changed the fact that you can now deploy your data in multiple geographic locations. And the second thing it has changed is that you don't have to wait for machines. If you want to scale up, it's a matter of minutes, not a matter of months like it was before. So that in turn translates into the app side where like before it would take you about eight months to one year to procure your machines to run your application or expand it. So you had eight months to build your feature. As long as you could do it within seven months, you were good. But now it's eight minutes to procure your app. So, I mean, building the feature in eight minutes is out of the question. So that's why all of the the cloud native uh, aspects of building apps and deploying databases and all of this start coming up. Do you think most people are going for their new apps containers right away, or is there is that a, a totally different discussion when regards to databases? I think it's uh, I think there's a, a spectrum. Um, I think it's interesting. Um, I feel like uh, that the journey goes something like this. Uh, people try to figure out the sub portions, and, and you had brought up SQL versus NoSQL, right? People try to uh, bring out the sub portion of their app that requires massive scalability. 
and they invariably give up consistency on that side and put that data into a NoSQL database. And then they tease apart the subset of the app that requires consistency and put that into an RDBMS system, like an Oracle or a, or a MySQL or a Postgres or one of these guys, and try to keep that data consistent. And you have uh, things like secondary indexes, transactions available to you. And because your data is now across a variety of different tiers, you now have to put in a cache, which composes the user-facing view and globally distribute it. So this has been the de facto architecture that people are have been gravitating towards, except the app, this architecture is insanely complex. And a majority of the time in building app features really gets spent in figuring out, hey, for this new feature of the app, should that piece of data go into my currently NoSQL tier, which can scale out, but cannot give me transactions and indexes? Or should it go into my SQL tier, which cannot scale out, but does give me transaction and indexes? And by the way, which pieces should I put into the cache, which is finite in, in quantity because it's all in memory, right? And how do I deal with the invalidation and the failures and scale out and backup and all of this stuff across this tier? So this has been the, the complexity. Now, people are slowly realizing there is a need for transactions in a scale-out system, for indexes in a scale-out system, and there is still a place for the old NoSQL systems which give you flexible schema, time-to-live-based data expiry, so on and so forth. So there's really a need for converging this to simplify the, the way databases run. Now, on an independent access, people are starting to embrace containers because containers enable one uh, being cloud neutral, like you can be independent of which whichever cloud you run in. You don't have to get married to their ecosystem. And the second piece is it really helps you transform your private data center into a cloud-like, uh, into a private cloud. So it's no longer just like a bunch of different servers that you care about. Like containers really abstract that away and make it very dynamic. For example, if a developer wants to interact with an on-premise IaaS and quickly wants to stand up an app tier and then a, a quick database tier and, and do some testing and develop some features and then tear it all down after he's done like maybe a, a week later. This is completely possible with the world of containers, whereas till now it would have been a very long and tedious process trying to procure those VMs, trying to get it set up, trying to get it secure, trying to get access and then do all of this stuff and one week later tear it all down. So uh, the movements are happening in independent directions. One of them about simplifying the app itself and the other about reorganizing yourself. And when both come together, it amplifies the need for cloud native databases quite a bit. I know with ta talking with end users that, you know, it's always this kind of the notion that, you know, you run production, long running stuff on prem, you're testing dev in the cloud, but I've actually seen quite a few now where they're actually test dev is on-prem, where there's a majority of developers and they need, you know, consistent speed. But then that app, since there might be only one of it, they'll actually run that in production. I don't know if you've seen that trend at all, but. Yes, I've seen that trend quite a bit, actually. Like I've seen it on both sides, seen uh, test dev moving to the cloud, seen uh, a, a test dev moving on-prem back from the cloud. Because, uh, I mean, it's, it's really... Uh, a scenario of a variety of different factors coming into play. Like you may already have a lot of hardware in your private data center and you move to the cloud simply because you couldn't as an IT operator satisfy the demand for self-service infrastructure. So a dev team comes up, like it's all microservices based right now. So each team wants their own entire stack and the stack can be slightly different from one team to the other. And the stack that you stand up is often invariably short-lived 
because like you want to build a feature, there's a two week sprint, you start, you want a new cluster at the beginning of the sprint. And by the end of the sprint, you're done with this, you've committed your features, it's gone up upstream through your CI CD pipeline, you want to tear everything down. And now you might go on to a completely different feature, which requires a completely different stack altogether. So this process, like, you know, starts people to get got people thinking, hey, the only way to achieve this is by moving to the cloud where people can just express their intent and get all of these VMs and, and do something. But the result of that move was that a lot of machines got left running idle. So the cost explosion, firstly, was just too much to handle. There was no clear way to, you know, contain what really happens here. And, and the second piece is, it also matters a little bit how you run your production and staging environments because your test and dev environments have to play nice with those environments. So moving to the cloud sometimes may not play nice with staying on-prem for production or, or, or what have you. So moving into a containerized world simplifies those apps, the way they're packaged, the way they're deployed. And I think people realize that once you have moved into a containerized world, it doesn't really matter if you deploy it on the cloud or on-premise. And there's already a lot of hardware on-premise, so why not reuse this for the test dev as well? I, this is kind of going a bit off topic, but you mentioned the word sprint. And, you know, you've been at Facebook. I don't know where else you've worked in the past, obviously Nutanix. But anytime I hear sprint, it makes me chuckle because it's like in the developer side, <laughs> it seems like it's back-to-back sprints. So I don't know when you ever actually get a break. No, guess, there's no break. Yeah, it's always a sprint. <laughs> think, yeah, it's like... It only indicates the fact that it's two weeks of running hard on one feature as opposed to two weeks of running hard and then not running hard. I think that's that second part doesn't quite happen. <laughs> oh man. I just, I hear it all the time and think, I, yeah, it's going nowhere fast. You're, I don't know what it is, but <laughs> makes me chuckle every time. The On the storage side, if you're deploying in the cloud databases and on-prem, like I I've took Yuga by DB for a spin with the deployment manifest you had and used our CSI driver for interacting with the storage. And one thing I thought was neat, which I just can't see how you do with a traditional database. So if I want to scale out the deployment, I can have a template that just keeps adding volumes for those, those uh, pods, which is, seems quite remarkable from a set, set and forget. That's right. Yes, that's right. And I think we had the advantage of starting to build the database in 2016 when container technologies were well known. So uh, we were able to build and architect the database around rapid scale out and scale in. And that's not even a word because I guess databases didn't really scale in. It was a one-way street. So, um, But if you even take NoSQL databases that were born in the era where you needed to scale out, uh, it is true that they can scale out, but they're not built for rapid scale out. They're built, it's, it's a a pretty uh, manual and laborious process where you have to pretty much babysit your database through the the acts of adding a bunch of nodes. And the whole thing would take many days to complete. And your database is now utilizing the new hardware only after the entire move is complete. This is typically how NoSQL databases work. Uh, SQL databases, on the other hand, of course, don't even scale out. So that means you have to move it up to your app tier, which is an even bigger undertaking. So with Yugabyte, one of the things that we specifically have done is uh, the ability for you to add nodes and instantly, in a matter of minutes, the new nodes start relieving pressure from the old nodes. So the scale out happens in small units. We call those units tablets. So it, it happens in small units called tablets. 
And if you remove the old nodes, they get re-replicated back, so which is the scale-in or reducing the size of your cluster, also in these small tablet units, and, uh, and the database stays functional throughout. Yeah, I've never heard of a DBA giving back storage before, so I don't know. This seems all like magic and would never happen. <laughs> That's true, but uh, funnily, like <laughs> in the world of uh, Facebook, like uh, the the one constant is that you have to innovate on apps all the time. So you have to build a lot of apps to have a good digital footprint. And not all of those apps may be as successful as the, the others. So some of those apps become wildly successful, in which case you need to scale out all the time and upgrade it online and have zero downtime and reconfigure it without downtime, so on and so forth. But those that are not as well received by people in the testing and so on and so forth, they invariably might get tapered down and, and taken out. So at which point you may not the, the usage may actually decrease over time and the app may morph into something completely different or maybe the feature may be removed altogether. So in those cases, scaling back down becomes important. Yeah, you know, it sounds amazing, but if I'm, you know, sitting back, I'm a developer or a DBA, it's like, how do I even get started? What, do you have a separate API or how can I talk to Yugabyte to get going? Yeah, so it's a great question. So very many, many people ask us the question, why another database, right? They say like so many databases out there, why do you build another database? And what they really mean is why another database API? So if you introduced a new database API and somebody really had to understand it, they'd be like, why? Just please shoot me already. There's so many. Right? <laughs> so like that's that's what we realized too, because we're developers too. We really understand the pain. So we said like, let's take existing APIs and not change the API, but add whatever functionality is missing into those APIs because the storage layer underneath the distribution replication and fault tolerance layer couldn't deal with them. So you can interact with Yugabyte using three standard well-known APIs, uh, Cassandra for the NoSQL side, Redis for the caching workloads, and uh, Postgres for the SQL workloads. So those are the three APIs that we intend to support in, in Yugabyte. Uh, now, we've added a lot of functionality on top, like our Cassandra and Redis APIs are in production in a bunch of customers. Our Postgres API is coming up soon. Uh, with Cassandra, we've added secondary indexes, distributed transactions, a JSON data type for Flexi schema, so on and so forth. So a bunch of enhancements to make it really supercharged. On the Redis side, we have it is a persistent, scalable Redis as a database. So you may be interacting with a cache API, which gives you very low latency access, but it actually stores and scales data on the other side. So typically, users of caches have to figure out how to persist the data. But this API is really nice, so we figured, you know what, you don't need to do that. If you like this API, just use this API as a database. It can survive faults. You can scale out, so on and so forth. And the third API is a SQL API through Postgres where you can scale out and get all the efficiencies of a NoSQL system, whereas you can still interact with it like a SQL database. I think that is just amazing from a, a business perspective that I don't really have to go and learn anything else and I can just go start using it right away. Like that that would be my, my number one takeaway out of all of it. Um, but to that note, if I didn't need this, you know, a database in four different regions and I just wanted something fast and scalable, what, could I just port over like an existing NoSQL or SQL into Yugabyte or does it need to be more purpose uh, No, I think uh, you could typically just port over existing applications into Yugabyte. Um, it depends on the, uh, it depends again on the motivation to do so. 
So uh, typically people may have a lot. So here are some cases where people actually have ported over existing apps into Yugabyte, right? So there are cases when there is a lot of data density requirement in their Cassandra use cases. Cassandra typically handles 500 gigabytes to a terabyte of data per node. Uh, we've already tested Yugabyte to over six, six and a half terabytes per node, and we could keep going because it's based on the HBase architecture from Facebook where we had like you know, 36 to 48 terabytes per node. So it's it can hand, it can pack a lot of density. And in the cloud, for instance, specifically, uh, what you find is density is much cheaper. Like adding more storage to a node is much cheaper than having to provision compute. So it's it's really a an operational ease as well as a cost saving on the IaaS side. So these are a couple of reasons why people would port. Similarly, on the Redis side, not having to deal with uh, the database in addition to the cache, because with vanilla Redis, you have to figure out the sharding. It's a single threaded process. So you have to shard it, replicate it, figure out failovers, and persist the data. And if a Redis node dies, you have to figure out how to fetch the data and repopulate it. So all of this just goes away. It just works like a distributed scale-out system. So you just deal, talk to a node or a set of nodes, and everything else just happens. And similarly, on the Postgres side, you may want to scale out for your data density or your query volume, and that just automatically happens in Yugabyte. So these are some of the reasons why you may want to port over existing apps as opposed to use the net new features and the existing APIs that we provide. You mentioned the NoSQL has um, can be used for transaction, but doesn't, I thought may, my understanding that NoSQL isn't, I don't want to say it's not very good at it, but I think that's where I'm leading it to. It's it, actually, you're right. I think traditional NoSQL does not even support transactions. It's not even consistent. You could lose data. But our version of the NoSQL API, by virtue of our common core, is transactional. So we added enhancements into our NoSQL API and, and our documentation, our docs website has like an explore core features section where it talks all about our transactional features that we added to the NoSQL uh, side of the house. So you could actually do begin transaction, change a whole bunch of different keys living on different nodes and then commit the transaction and you would sh it would show up atomically. And we reuse this internally to build secondary indexes, a unique constraint to keep unique values in a column and so on and so forth. So these are traditional RDBMS constructs that we have ported over in the NoSQL, into the NoSQL world because our core data platform supports that. And we're just exposing that through the language APIs in a strictly enhanced manner. So you can just run a standard Cassandra app with the open source driver, and you could switch to our driver to use, for example, the adjacent data type, or you could do transactions or so on and so forth. Wow, okay, so I have, everything seems good, but if I wanna back up this thing, can I just use the the old APIs, like I like dump the database out or what, yep. How do I back up the data? Yep. So there's a couple of strategies. Uh, the simple one, of course, is you can just use a dump API, like a MySQL dump equivalent. So you just dump out the data into a CSV format that you can subsequently import into the database. Uh, in the enterprise edition, however, we support a more uh, sophisticated version of doing a, a distributed backup where we actually uh, soft link or hard link to files, and then we are able to copy that out to a target like an NFS endpoint or an S3 object store or something like that. So we're able to do all of that uh, on the enterprise side. And for open source users, we have the standard uh, you know, scan and dump based API. Interesting. Um, I think that covers it from a workflow on that side. I have one question kind of like, I don't know if it will apply or not, but I ran to, into issues in the past with Solar and, and doing rebuilds. 
can it be used just to dump documents in and replace solar as well? Um, it seems it like it. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a very, very often asked question. <clears throat> so today, the short answer is no. Uh, we, you can add documents into it, but we don't build search indexes automatically. But that said, our API, our query layer is pluggable. So we already have, like we were talking, Cassandra, Redis, and Postgres, and uh, solar-based search. So the search API and an object store-based API are pretty often asked by our customers. So that's something that we probably will think of adding at, at some point in the future. I just memories of compaction coming along and killing everything is what is what I was thinking about, and I thought, no, maybe this solves the problem. But uh, yeah, so we have compactions too, but our compactions don't affect our P ninety nine latency, so we're pretty good about it. It's a fully rewritten database in C plus plus, so again, uh, GC pauses, all of these things don't affect us as much. So for people that are looking to get started with a new app or moving something over, is there a typical migration path or is it just, just try it out? Um, it, there, is a, there is a migration path. So, uh, I mean, it depends on different people uh, come from different backgrounds. So some people are trying to achieve something new in an existing app. So which effectively becomes a new app, but with enhancements to an existing app. So for, for those kind of folks, like if they're using like a Cassandra API or a Redis API, it's a pretty one-to-one -one mapping in terms of how the schema works, how like, um, and, and even for people using something like a MongoDB, right, which is another NoSQL database, the concepts are pretty similar. They translate over pretty laterally. So they should be able to try it out and get going pretty quickly. Uh, for people trying to move from the RDBMS world, I think it's a little more nuanced because the NoSQL world was invented for write scalability. The RDBMS world does a lot of things like joins. So they'd have to appear under the hood as to the reason why they want to move to a scale-out system. Is it write scalability? Is it read scalability? Is it future-proofing? There's a few things that they may want to, to consider. But that said, it should be easy enough to try Yugabyte on a laptop or like on your, on your desktop or something. So it's like a single node instance to quickly play with it and see what the strategy would be. And uh, if you wanted a, a bigger install, you, like, you know, folks could reach out and, and we make it pretty easy for people to install this and try this out with a, an eval license in, in any of the public clouds, private clouds, what have you. Well, we talked a lot about containers, but it obviously runs in a container. It would run, you know, kind of the old fashioned way. Um, is that your a supported method as well? Or does it have to be in containers? Um, no, it. I mean, Yugabyte runs inside containers, outside containers, or in VMs or bare metal. And in fact, we have POCs slash production customers using a mix of these. So we have people that are trying us out in all the three IS layers. Um, in fact, theoretically speaking, because each Yugabyte process just needs network connectivity and doesn't really care about where it itself runs, you could even have all the three in a cluster, although that's not recommended because the performance characteristics would be completely different. But at a high level, uh, one of the design goals was to have no external dependencies so it can run on any IaaS layer. Or whatever you got, you can use it. Whatever you got, you can use it because... Uh, I mean, we already know the predominant IS layers at this point, so we specifically made sure that it's easy to do. And plus, it's uh, it's actually a pain based on, on real-world experience. So we were uh, developing and managing running massive-scale HBase clusters, and uh, HBase depends on HDFS and depends on Zookeeper. And a lot of these things got very difficult to deploy in a multi-zone or multi-region uh, like deployment uh, form factor. So 
what we decided at that point when building Yugabyte was like, you know, even though there's a lot of code out there that we're intimately familiar with, it being in Java and it being uh, so dependent on external systems really makes it very difficult for people to use such systems. So it's really important to allow for high-performance drives like NVMe drives, very large memory heaps, and the ability to not be dependent on anything and deploy this in any any which way you want to configure it, multi-region, multi-zone, single zone, et cetera, uh, really, really helps. So, so yeah, so it, it's an explicit decision. It's It didn't happen by accident. On, I guess, on a, on a different note, in, on the news, uh, just because you're kind of living, I guess, into the future, I always kind of think of the valley as like a giant bomb goes off and it takes a while for the ripples to get to the, the rest of the world. Got it. With, <laughs> With Cloudera and Hortonworks kind of merging together, or at least the intent, yep. do you see much of an impact from that? I kind of, my take was HDFS was kind of dead, object storage is taken over, Kubernetes is becoming the orchestrator, but there's obviously more to it than that. There's machine learning on top of it, and you know, there's the public cloud kind of. Am- yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, all that that you mentioned is true. I think I just had one other. Uh, I mean, it's just like my thought process. But the other thing was the big clouds also are doubling down on uh, analytic workloads. And Cloudera and Hortonworks are both involved with analytic workloads. So what I'd imagine is that being to a, a unified entity gives them much more a reach as well as operational efficiency to counter these guys. Because, uh, I mean, if you think about it, the cloud is an ideal platform for running uh, analytic and big data workloads. Uh, you can spin up all the machines you want, uh, quickly analyze data, shut them all down, and shove the results into something like an object store, which is really cheap. So it makes for a good platform. As a, like, so that would, that would be my additional thing when, think, when analyzing that situation. But, but you know, it's, it's, uh, they probably have more details on why they did it. So. That is probably like a good summary of my big data session at .next London. <laughs> just like object storage, you might as well use it and then, you know, compute. When it's free, use it if you have it. If not, you know, you're on a limited resource. Because I think a lot of these long running or, you know, if you submit a job, do you care if it takes two hours or four hours? Sure, you'd like to have it in 10 minutes, but if there's a, a cost associated with it, you probably don't want it in 10 minutes. Exactly, yep. That's right, yeah. Um, that's all I really had. I don't know if you want to add anything more on the Yugabyte DB side of the house, but I did want to get Angelo in um, to ask his three questions. All right, let's do that. Thanks, Dwayne. So, Karthik, these are probably going to be the hardest, uh, most difficult questions you'll get uh, during the podcast. <laughs> uh, so we, we really just want folks to get to know you a little better. And these are these questions are a little more personal, if you will. And um, they're rapid fire. So they're real, real, real easy. So here okay. we go. iOS or Android? Uh, well, iOS right now, Android in the future. <laughs> That's literally my state of mind. So you caught me in the middle. <laughs> um, it seems to be a theme. Yeah. Yeah. You see the prices on those, uh, you know, new phones, man. Oh man! <laughs> you just gotta use some of that startup funding to put a down payment on it. Yeah. It's like, where did all the money go? I bought an iPhone. I bought an iPhone. <laughs> um, favorite app? App? Uh, Google Maps. Okay, great. And finally, eBooks or physical books? 
Yeah, this is where I don't know if I'm going to be popular or not. Physical books. Oh, um, good. I, I actually like the smell. So yeah, <laughs> I, I don't read too much anyway. I mean, I, I guess I do, but it's mostly online, and maybe that's the reason why I like physical books. But <laughs> great, good great. stuff. Thank you, Dwayne. I'm going to guess you have enough screen time in your day that it's okay to pick up a paper copy. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like death by blue light. Exactly. Yeah. It used to be death by blue screen way back in the day. Windows. <laughs> <laughs> <Now it's... laughs> moving, moving up the stack, so to speak. That's well, true. thank you very much for coming on the show. I think it's been a good insight into kind of what's coming for a lot of us in the future as far as running databases in the cloud. Uh, thanks again and look forward to seeing you around the valley. Um, where can people find you online? Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, you can find me online and LinkedIn as well. Um, uh, well, and, and Facebook also, but, but mainly Twitter and LinkedIn are my hangout spots. So. And I know you can also find him on the Yugabyte DB forums as well. Because uh, I've used it to help out my <laughs> sad Kubernetes skills. So well, that was good, though. That was a great experiment. I really enjoyed your video. Oh, thank you very much. Well, thanks, and we will catch you on Twitter. All right. Thank you. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for joining us today. Be sure to check out the Nutanix online community at next.nutanix.com for resources and blogs. A quick reminder for folks, Nutanix Technology Champion applications are open. If you're a customer, IT enthusiast, developer, or just interested in learning about Nutanix, consider applying for the program. So with that, from the team here at Nutanix, have a great week. Bye.